You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at bit.ly forward slash ARI webinars. Do people's interests have to conflict? By Gregory Salmieri. Hello, everyone. This is Gregory Salmieri, and you're watching Philosophy for Living on Earth, the Ayn Rand Institute's weekly webinar series where intellectuals take up philosophical problems that we all confront as we lead our lives and address them from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. This week, I'm up, and the question we're dealing with is, do our interests have to conflict? We often do find ourselves in conflict with others. Uh, when we and they are each pursuing what they take or we take to be our own interests. Uh, our cover image here uh, gives a kind of trivial example of this. All these people are reaching for the last slice of pizza. Each of them wanted and only one of them can get it since there's only one slice left. So we have a conflict of interest. This is a trivial one, but there are multiple cases, lots of them all over the place, of people wanting the same resource that only one of them could have. Indeed, wars have been fought over pieces of land. Right now, today, I haven't been following the news to know where we are in it, there is an impeachment vote taking place in the, uh, in the House of Representatives that looks like it's going to go straight down partisan lines, right? With each side uh, pursuing what they take or claim to be the nation's interest, although uh, sometimes they even claim it's just their party's interests, and they seem to be uh, in conflict. The Democrats want Trump impeached, the Republicans don't want him impeached, and they're going to vote that way. So there's another conflict of interest between people's interests. And indeed, if we look at the impeachment uh, issue itself, one of the articles of impeachment is that the president abused his power by taking official action in pursuit of his personal interests rather than the nation's in a case where his interests and the nation's, again, allegedly conflicted. So it seems like here again, we have a case where one way or another, people's interests are conflicting. Elections generally are seen as cases of uh, where people's interests conflict. After all, only one candidate or one party can win the election, and there are more than one, so their interests are in conflict. And elections are often thought to be a type of or analogy to a job interview. So what about job interviews? There are multiple people up for the same job. They're in conflict. Only one can win. And not just rivals for jobs, romantic rivals. Two suitors want the same uh, woman or man, and only one of them can have her since what they each want and what she wants, let's say, is an exclusive relationship. So again, there's a conflict. One of them will win, the other one will lose. It's sometimes thought that the conflicts of interests are absolutely pervasive and that the whole purpose of ethics is to resolve them, not to get rid of them, uh, not to cut them off before they happen since they are unavoidable, but to tell us what to do in case of them, to rein in each of us in pursuit of his own interest, uh, to make room for the interests of others. This uh, view is uh, famously um, advocated by, by Hobbes, uh, Thomas Hobbes in his uh, famous book Leviathan and by the character Glaucon in Plato's Republic. But that's not my view of how conflicts work. I don't think they're inevitable. Some of the kinds of competition that we've talked about above are inevitable, but I don't think they're really conflicts of interest. Um, to think about what a conflict of interest is, we really need to think about what our interest really is. In each case, all the people concerned are going for what they desire, but what you desire isn't always and invariably in your interest. 
we can think of obvious cases of this. People abuse drugs and it's harmful to them. They want to do it, but they're not, it's not good for them to do it. It's not in their interest. We all, you know, have examples of eating things or staying out late or drinking things that harm us, or we know people who've done that, or people who stay in abusive relationships or in relationships or in jobs that aren't abusive and are comfortable but have run their course and we think it would be better to leave them and yet we see people stay. To think about whether there are conflicts of interests as opposed to just conflicts between what you want right now and what other people want right now, we need to understand or think about the concept of one's interest. What is one's interest as opposed to merely one's whims, merely what one wants in the moment? And that's a tremendously abstract question. For Rand, much of the point of ethics is to give you the guidance you need to define your interests, to define them rationally. And in her view, when people do define their interests in this way, there are no conflicts, no internal conflicts between the different elements, your own values, and no conflicts between you and other people, if the other people are defining their interests rationally. The, um, the core place where Rand talks about this is a wonderful little uh, essay called The Conflicts of Men's Interests, which is chapter four in the book, The Virtue of Selfishness. And I'm basically riffing off of the ideas in this essay, in this uh, little presentation. I'm gonna talk for maybe 15 minutes or so uh, with a rather crude PowerPoint, I'm afraid to say, uh, since I had to put it together very quickly. Um, but talk for about 15 minutes on this subject and I'm not going to follow the kind of outlines of her essay, uh, the particular you know order and, and terminology she uses in every case. But I'm going to be uh, sticking to the ideas uh, in it in, in kind of framing uh, what I'm saying. And I really recommend it. It's a, I think a particularly good and, and underread essay. Uh, so that's where I'm I'm drawing my inspiration for this session from. And you can see in the title, conflicts is in scare quotes because she doesn't think there are real conflicts of men's interests not if they're defining their interests rationally. In that case, they harmonize. But let's start with, with the question, what is your interest then? Before we can know if your interest conflicts with someone else, we have to know what is someone's interest. The examples of drug abuse and staying in the abusive relationship and of people wanting things that aren't good for them, that even they, when they reflect on it, don't think are good for them, and not just good for their physical health, although that's part of it, but good for them all considered, means that our interest has to be distinguished from our whims, from what we might want in a given moment. Rand, at one point, I think, memorably defines a whim as a desire experienced by somebody who doesn't know where it comes from and doesn't care to. Um, we need a, con a concept of interest or well-being to kind of think holistically about what's good for you or what you want or what serves you on whole as distinguished from the various transient things you may want in a given minute, moment because those things might conflict with one another, right? Your interest is a kind of sum, not a heap of contradictory things. And so it has to be consistent in order to assess whether a given decision uh, is uh, in your interest or against your interest, we need to be able to think of your interest as a whole. And if you have a, a million different desires and it's four or five of them and against six of them and neutral with respect to seven of them, uh, we don't have a way to say whether it's in your interest. We, the whole idea of your interest is one kind of sum, a whole thing uh, that we then can relate particular decisions or choices or values to. 
And so to have an interest, the various particular goals or values that constitute it need to be consistent. They need to be consistent with one another. They need to be consistent with reality, with what's possible to you. And they need to be consistent across time. So you can think of your interest as a sum, as opposed to just what happens to interest you now. And one way to think of it is to, via the question, what do you want out of life? That's what your interest is. You're leading a life, what do you want out of it? What kind of a life do you want to lead? Keeping in mind that only certain kinds of lives are possible to you. You're a certain kind of creature, a human being, and you can't live like a plant or an animal. You can try, but it won't work. That's part of what we mean by saying your values or your interests need to be consistent with reality. Ethics is supposed to guide you here, at least on the objectivist view. That's what ethics is for, to help you to figure out what you want to do with your life. You're going to have to make your own decision. It's going to be different from other people's. But since you're a human being, there is guidance that ethics can offer you. Man's life, says Rand, is the standard of morality, but your own life is its purpose. If existence on earth is your goal, you must choose your actions and values by the standard of what is proper to man for the purpose of preserving, fulfilling, and enjoying the irreplaceable value which is your life. And what is man's life? Well, man's life as required by his nature is not the life of a mindless brute or eluding, of a looting thug or a mooching mystic, but the life of a thinking being. Uh, not life by means of force or fraud, but life by means of achievement not survival at any price, since there is only one price that pays for man's survival, reason. So what do you want out of life, given that you're a human being? Well, the only kind of life you can have that will be consistent, that the values that constitute it will add up, is a human life, a life of achievement. There are countless, an infinite number of different human lives available to you, centered around different particular values, different particular achievements and constellations of things you can try to achieve. But to aim at your life, to try to make something of your life, to want something out of life in the rational sense, in a sense that you have a chance of getting it, is to have a life centered around achievement, to aim at a life centered around achievement. To have achievement that you want to achieve. And that's what values are. And your interests consist of such aimed at values, such aimed at achievements. So the central idea to keep in mind when identifying your interest is the idea of cause and effect. Values, the things that you're pursuing, the things that are the content of your interest, have to be effects of your actions and valued as such. And that means that you have to expect to have to exert effort on them. If not, they're not achievements. If everything just fell in your lap, that wouldn't be a life. It's not possible to live that way. That is, it's not possible to uh, pursue and count on that, to pursue that and then count on get it, keeping it if you've gotten it. And it wouldn't be worth it if it was. Those things wouldn't be achievements. It wouldn't be a human life. It would be just being kept on life support, so to speak. So a human life is a life of values, a life of pursuing values, of trying to achieve things, and then succeeding in achieving many of them. And it amounts to, it's effortful. You have to expect effort. Effort is part of what you should value in valuing your life. Otherwise, you're not valuing a life. Moreover, the effort of living, the effort of achieving our values, isn't cut out for us. Just as the world doesn't owe you a living, 
owe you the satisfaction of your desires while you sit there and do nothing. The world also doesn't owe you a job. That is, it doesn't owe you someone else's working out for you what actions you need to take to get the things that you want. Your life and your values are your responsibility. This means that it's up to you to identify the means to your values. Not just take the actions to pursue them, but to discover them. That's part of what it is for those things to be values. Values aren't isolated items uh, that you want, but have no idea of how to get, uh, no idea of how to figure out how to get, and aren't willing to do anything for. Or as Rand puts it, a rational man doesn't indulge in wistful longings for ends divorced from means. Rationality involves causal thinking. The things you're trying to achieve are effects, and to choose them as effects is to choose to enact their causes, to choose to discover and take and look for, if you don't already know, the actions that are needed to achieve them. That's part of what valuing is about. That's part of what loving your life is about. A human value is not like some cash you see on the ground that you steal or take or lunge after. It's not like looting. And it's significant that Rand's description, particularly in Atlas Shrugged, are one of the main descriptions of many of the villains is that they're looters. A looter is someone who steals, but in particular, it's someone who grabs something short range. He breaks the window of a shop and takes a TV out of it, or he's a pirate and he sees another ship and he goes and seizes the things on it. It's a short range way of thinking, not one of creating, right? Creating versus taking, uh, making versus taking, and not one of long range planning, which is necessary to really create something. It's one of just seizing. That's the way animals live. Animals go through their lives so far as we can uh, approximate or estimate what their mental state must be like. And there's something that they want, not something they want long range that they're pursuing, but in every moment a desire comes over them and they do what they desire to do. And there's something that, you know, in them, uh, some instinctual mechanism or some code that causes them to desire in the moment the things that they need in that moment out of the things that they can perceive. And so they can safely just follow their desires and it can add up to a life for them. But that's not how human beings work. Our desires aren't automatic in that way and they don't automatically add up to anything. They don't automatically serve us. Rather, if our life is going to have any direction and purpose, if we're going to have values and an interest and in something that's good for us, as opposed to just the whims of every moment, then we need to think causally. We need to think about how are we going to get what we want. That understanding of what it would take to get it has to be part of the thinking that's involved in settling on it, on it as something that we want. And then we also have to think about the effects of the things that we value and make sure that we do value them once all their causes and all their effects are taken into account, that we really think they're good for us, that we really think they're part of a life of achievement. So a rational man does not indulge in wistful longings for ends divorced from means. His values are causal. They're embedded in a causal sequence and they're seen as part of the causal system, which is the life that he's leading. That's what it is to rationally identify something as a to one's interest, not just to lust after some concrete with no thought to what would be involved in getting it and what effects it would have. So far, we've been talking about the action you need to take to 
acquire values and how that has to be built into your thinking of it as a value, as part of your interest. How does this relate to other people, to living in society? Well, as Rand puts it, living in society does not relieve a man of the responsibility of supporting his life. Put another way, other people aren't shortcuts to your goals that let you bypass cause and effect. They can help you to achieve a lot. We're much better off living with other people. Indeed, it's the right way to live. It would be horrible to have to live on your own somewhere, on a desert island. But all of the values you can get from people can only be secured, can only be gotten well, can only be safe, can only continue to come to the extent that you respect the fact that everything people has to have to offer you comes from their reason. And so because all the values you have to get from other people comes from their living rationally, from their thinking causally, from their using their own minds to lead their own lives, you have to deal with them as rational creatures by persuasion. Trying to deal with them otherwise by force is as impractical as trying to deal with inanimate objects by persuasion. And so thinking causally and forming your values causally and recognizing that to value something is to be committed to working for it and to understanding what kind of work it will take in a social context. That means when you value something that you're going to get through other people, you don't expect to get it from them unearned. You don't think they owe it to you with nothing required on your part, but rather you expect to earn it from them, to get it from them by trade you're going to give them something in return. And you're going to get it uh, from them by trade, which means not just that you're going to give them something in return, but that you're going to deal with them as a trader does, by means of, as Rand puts it, a free, voluntary, unforced, uncoerced exchange, an exchange which benefits both parties by their own independent ju judgment. So if I want a value that I can only get from you, or anyway, I want to value when I think you're a means to get it, I want to get it from you. I expect to have to give you something in return. I don't expect you to do it just for me. I don't think you owe it to me. I have to give you something in return. But not only do I have to give you something that I think is a value in return, not only do I have to make it what I think is a good deal to you, I have to recognize that you're a rational creature, that to earn something from you is not just to give you something that I think you should value in exchange for it, but to recognize that this has to go through your judgment. I have to persuade you that this deal is good for you, that it's good for you to do what I want you to do. Now that gets us into talking about, that's the context for talking about some of the issues that come up and are seen as conflicts of interest. And the main point that I think we need to understand a lot of the kind of cases we've talked about, the cases where uh, two people are running for the same office, uh, or where two people are applying for the same job, or where there are rival romantic suitors, is that competition is not a conflict of interest. Competition is not conflict, not in the relevant sense. Think about competing in a game, which is where maybe this, uh, this word is most understood. What you want if you're playing uh, baseball is not to be at home plate as though that location is so wonderful, but to get home and not to get to home base in any way, say by running the bases backwards or shooting the shortstop or something, but to get home in the sense defined by the game of baseball within the context of rules, 
which make it hard to get home. And that effort involved in doing it, the fact that you have to play by these rules, defeat these people, outrun whatever uh, you have to do to get home is part of what makes it a value to get home. That effort uh, going through those steps is part of what makes it valuable. Likewise, if you want to win a game of chess, if you're competing in chess, the goal isn't to simply have the chess pieces on a board in, the con in one of the configurations that constitutes checkmate. It's to get there via the kinds of moves that are allowable in chess, not by cheating and not by just randomly rearranging the tiles or the, um, the pieces, right? Now, games are artificial. The rules are arbitrary precisely to make it hard, to make there be a challenge, to make you have to take effort to get to the arbitrarily chosen goal. But the reason is because th that games have that, have that effortful character, is that they are kind of modeling artificially a certain feature of life. The feature of life we've discussed, whereby values are effects that have to be achieved via causes. But take competition in real life situations. Competition, not conflict. War is a conflict, not a competition. But it's a competition if, for example, you're competing with somebody for a job. So think about what it means to compete for a job, to regard that job as a value, to be competing for it, to understand that for it to be a value means it's something you have to work for, you have to achieve, uh, to understand that you're trying to achieve this through interaction with other people. It's a trade. Trade requires persuading people. Well, then what's the context for this? It's the employer's job. He's the one who has the job to offer you. So it's his decision who's going to get it. You want him to choose you, but you don't want him to choose you randomly. You want him to choose you for good reasons from a field of qualified applicants, right? Because if there were no other applicants, we'd be living in a kind of situation in a kind of economy in a kind of world where a company like this couldn't exist. It can't be that for each job, there's only one person qualified and uh, there's no competition. There might be some weird case in which you're the first person in the field, which is great. But um, if there's a job and there's applications for it, the whole context arises in the context of a market economy where different people are selling their labor, right? Uh, to fulfill different needs. So the whole context of a job is that when, of competing for a job is there's an employer who has certain needs. There's a market. You're part of the market. You want the employer to choose you. You want him to choose you for good reasons. You don't want to just get the job and you just don't want to just have the title, but there's some aim you have of creating things, doing certain work. You think you could do this work well. The employer has a need for it and you want him to choose you because you're good at it. But this all implies the background of, of a field of applicants, a chance of losing. If there's no chance of not succeeding, then there's no effort involved and there's no actual work. And all the facts that imply all of this apply that there will be other jobs for you, other opportunities. So there's a competition here where you're pitted against the other job candidates, but there's a kind of fundamental agreement among you and the candidates if you're all being rational about this, if you're all seeing the job not as a whim that you want, but as a value, a rational value that you see as part of the kind of causal system of your life and that you understand the causal prerequisites for. You have to value the competitive system, the freedom to choose, the, the employer, the fact that the employer has standards, the fact that um, he's looking for someone who's a good fit for him. Um, and so there's a really deep, um, deep truth 
to the old platitude that people would say when they found that they were in competition with one another, may the best man win or may the best person win. That's right. That is something on which rational competitors, whether in a game or in a competition for a job, should be aligned on. There's a competition here, and I want the best person to win. I want the employer to make a good decision, um, and then I want to earn that decision being me. And I understand that if I don't win this time, if so long as that policy is um, so long as that policy is carrying on, there will be um, more occasions uh, more occasions for this. I see uh, in the chat Alan telling me that he can't see my video, and I'm also. I don't know why my video won't start. Hold on a moment while I try to address this technical difficulty. There we go. So my video should be live now. Um, as I was saying, competition is not a conflict, right? The competitors, if they're thinking about the job that they're trying to get, assuming we're talking about competitors for a job, uh, in the way we've been talking about, are each thinking of it as uh, something to earn and are each on the perspective, may the best man win. And I think the same is true, though I won't talk about it in, in any detail, in cases of romantic rivalry. People could ask about that in the, in the Q&A. I want to talk about um, another context in which this idea of conflicts of interests have has come up recently. Uh, it's all the, you know, all the rage now to talk about it in these terms, and uh, in which I think the perspective that I'm uh, suggesting and that Rand endorses um, really makes a difference, and that's the idea of privilege. You know, the idea that there's white privilege, black, uh, uh, male privilege, straight privilege, cis privilege, etc. This idea, I think, is a tremendous package deal, but is an irrational concept that groups together things that don't belong uh, with it. It's true that there's injustice against uh, blacks, people of color, as they say generally, that is members of other racial minorities, uh, women, gays, trans people, etc. There's a lot of injustice uh, faced by these people, uh, more than is sometimes realized, especially by people who don't face it. And we can debate just how much injustice there is and whether various claims of it are true or false. Um, but I think the real thing done by the concept privilege that's really deadly and worse most of all for the people who suffer these injustices is that it makes these injustices seem like an advantage for those of us who aren't faced by them. Who, that is, makes the injustices seem like an advantage to those people who aren't their direct victims. So for example, I'm a, a straight white man, right? Uh, if there's injustice against a black person or a woman, uh, it's seen by the concept privilege and by many people as an advantage to me. But I think that's a really perverse and a-causal way of thinking about this. So let's drill into this example a little bit. 
Suppose in a given competition, there's a boss, uh, we were talking about the example of two people competing for the same job, and I'm competing for a job against, uh, you know, someone who's say Latino, and the employer is racist. Maybe he's an outright bigot, or maybe he's just someone who's a little bit uncomfortable with Latino people. And so even though he doesn't um, think of himself as discriminating against them, he's kind of uncomfortable with them and the job interview goes badly with the Latino guy. You just can't kind of feel him or relate to him. Um, and so I get the job. In that case, the best man didn't win. Supposing in this case that the Latino man was more qualified than I was. Well, is that an advantage to me? The idea of privilege is that it is. The idea that this is a privilege is that it is. And that I've lived in a society my whole life like this and therefore have often gotten unfairly chosen over black people, brown people, women, trans people, etc. in countless instances, maybe in many of which I wasn't aware of. That fact is my privilege. But the question one has to ask in thinking about this is, am I really better off being unjustly and irrationally favored in this way than I would be in a world where people were treated justly and rationally? To think that, you'd have to think that life is a zero-sum game, and it isn't. Sure, I might have gotten this job or this spot in a school that someone else didn't, but do I benefit from the system of unfairness, from the system where the best man doesn't win if I'm sometimes favored by it? And again, of course, sometimes we're all disfavored by it. Well, to think that you'd have to think there are a fixed number of values to get in the world, a fixed number of jobs, a fixed number of places in the best schools, et cetera. But none of that's true. There might be a limited number of seats at say Harvard today, not that I went to Harvard, but there can be more in the future if Harvard expands or there could be more great schools. The school can expand or others can arise. There's not a fixed number of jobs. And living in a world where decisions are made irrationally, uh, even if the irrationality favors you at the expense of someone else in a very local situation, is not better for you. You're better in a world where uh, these decisions are made well. It's, you're better, I think, even in the kind of simple economic perspective. There'll be more money, more wealth, more jobs. Um, we can talk about this, kind uh, of think through specific cases uh, in the Q&A if people want to talk about them. But the whole idea of conceiving of it as a privilege is part of this conceiving of it as our interests are inherently in conflict. There's some kind of static pile of goods that are the values. Our interest is to get the goods in those static piles without any thought to where they come from, what they require, what kind of social system or political system gives rise to them, without any thought about what kind of efforts on our part are required to earn them, without any thought about what role they're going to play in our lives once we get them. And then, of course, if we think about it that way, we're inherently and we're always in conflict over these things, like we're in conflict over this last slice of pizza. But if we think of values not that way, but as things to be achieved because they play a role in our lives, uh, they have to be consistent with one another, they have to, we have to think about the context in which they are um, values to us, we have to think about the social context and all of this depends, then insofar as all the people involved think that way, there are not necessarily conflicts. Indeed, there are not conflicts, though there might be competition. So let me just close by running quickly through some of the examples we talked about. The literal example of the pizza. 
Why is there a conflict here? And does there need to be? How do we think about it rationally? What's in your interest if you're the woman, I guess, in the green shirt grabbing it? Well, whose pizza is it? Did all these people chip in for the pizza on the understanding that everyone would have an equal share? And if so, has she had more or less than her share to begin with? Or is it her pizza, which she bought to feed herself, but she offered the extra slices that she wasn't going to eat to the group? Or did she, she buy it maybe for the group or someone else did? And if so, why? And does it follow from that, like who you know, should have this slice if they all want it? And why can't they get more pizza? They can order another pie. So you, know, you have to think about these things and thinking who should get this last slice. What about wars? Well, a war is a real conflict. It's not a competition. A war is where people are trying to destroy each other. And for that to happen, at least one side, and often both, has to be irrational. They're trying not to earn some value, not to lead their own lives, but rather to sacrifice the other side. Often both sides are irrational. And the same goes not only for war, but for any kind of case of fighting. Fighting where it's not a game like a sport where you're fighting, but you know, trying to kill, destroy, mug, rob, etc. one another. These things are irrational. The person who initiates the force is always doing so irrational. What about voting? Well, in a way, voting is like uh, all the issues that arise in politics are in a way like the, the job candidate issue, right? There are two people, there's a system by which they can be chosen, and there are people who are empowered to choose them. Um, or if it's not people, if you're voting on a law because you're a legislator or you're voting on a verdict in the jury. But what we're voting over is how to exercise force. And so you really have to think about why this system exists in the first place, that it's a necessary means of preserving freedom. Therefore, that voting is a moral responsibility that you don't have to vote, but if you vote, uh, it's a moral responsibility to do it for the right reason, the reason that respects why we have a government, why we need voting as a means to it, that voting is about preserving rights, preserving the freedom that enables us to deal with one another by reason and persuasion, rather than having to be at one another's throats all the time. Today, we live in a semi-free society in which voting sometimes serves this uh, purpose, but in which a lot of what's going on is factions using the ballot box to gang up on one another. Sometimes one needs to participate in that for self-defense, but one's lodestar and responsibility has to be to look for the ways to support freedom and constitutionalism and get away from the kind of gang warfare that comes from viewing us as having inherently conflicting interests. What's really in one's interest is freedom and working towards it. And candidates need to keep that in mind when uh, they decide to seek office. It's part of what makes holding the offices they seek a value. We've already discussed jobs, uh, romantic rivals. I'll hold off for the the Q&A, since we're over where I thought we'd be in time. Okay, so thank you for joining us uh, for this uh, webinar. We're going to resume the series, I think, on January 8th with Keith Lockage giving a presentation. I'm, I'm not sure yet about the topic. Um, so now it's a time for Q&A. Alain Giorno is going to join me for this. I'm going to end the slideshow, I think, uh, and hopefully we'll have images of us now. Okay, uh, sorry to everyone for the technical difficulties and for not being on screen the whole time. Um, we should have about half an hour for questions, discussion. Hey, Greg. Hi. Hi, so we've got a few questions in the queue. Uh, what if I read them to you and, and uh, sure. go that way? So first question from an anonymous attendee. 
so in the, having raised the context of self-interest, the person is asking, uh, what advice does objectivism offer for someone who forgets to be rational all the time by evading reality and, and who forgets to be rational all the time but evades reality through procrastination in terms of thinking about your interests and so on? So I think the idea that you evade reality through procrastination is a little backwards. I think it's more likely that you're procrastinating through evading reality. And that might not be the only way to be procrastinating, right? So procrastinating is when you have something that should be a priority. It's something you need to be doing and you keep putting it, it off. And I think all of us, or I found myself in that situation uh, doing that. I think a lot of people do. Uh, if you just forget about the thing, that itself is not irrationality yet, or it's not evasion. It's, the issue comes up with when you notice this at some point. And if you don't notice that you're doing this, you should, you know, if you have goals, uh, you should have some process for monitoring. Are you making progress towards them in your life? And if you find that you're not, um, that your goals are slipping further and further into the future, and what you're doing in a given day is uh, not helping you to make progress on them, then part of taking responsibility for your values is thinking about why that is, Right. And you might find that the problem is you've chosen unrealistic goals that you can't set, uh, reach. You might find that, no, they're realistic goals, but something's been going on in your life that meant that you can't prioritize them the way you thought you would be able to now. Or you might find that you have some issue that's causing you to put them out of mind. Um, maybe, for example, you're very anxious about them and you, you um, therefore find that it's very hard for you to, to, to work on um, something because you've invested too much in it and you're scared about failing or there are different issues that can cause somebody to uh, find themselves demotivated to work on what they uh, think they should be working on. And there's some kind of conflict in your thinking that you have to work to resolve. And if you're doing that, you're doing that work and you're making some progress towards resolving it, then that's not evading reality. Even if you haven't yet, you know, gotten everything back on track, uh, it can be if you're pretending to yourself that you're fixing the problem and you're not. Part of fixing it might be readjusting your priorities. Uh, and part of it might be just, you know, discovering a better system to work. And um, there's kind of productivity hacks and, uh, and, um, and you know, various psychological systems uh, to help you get things done better. And which of those is best, that kind of level of advice is kind of too concrete for philosophy. But what philosophy tells you is you have to take responsibility for that situation broadly and face the reality of the fact that you're not getting done the things that you think you should be getting done or have said you should be getting done and then work out how to change that either by changing what your goals are or by changing the way you go about your day in order to achieve them. All right, so an, another question, this one from an anonymous attendee. I'm not sure if it's the same person. Um, if you lose in a given situation because you're not the best person, either for the job or whatever the case may be, and you know it, is it irrational to feel sad about losing? No. Um, one, it's not irrational to feel sad about those facts, that you're not the best at something you wish you were better. Uh, it's irrational to wallow in that, you know, and then just, bemoan it and not do anything about it. But part of having values is there are concrete things you want and you feel positive emotions when you get them and negative ones when you don't. And if it's a big thing, you could feel, you know, it can be a real loss for you. 
even if you think, uh, even if you think um, it made sense, it wasn't an injustice, but that um, you just weren't good enough at this. But part of taking responsibility for your life is knowing that it's baked into life that that's going to happen sometimes not treating it like some metaphysical tragedy when it happens to you, treating it as sad, but then, you know, picking up and getting on with your life and recognizing that that's something you're going to need to do sometimes. And how sad you should be depends on just how big a value it is. If someone who you love chooses someone else over you, that's a big deal. If you applied for, you know, two jobs and you didn't get one of them or you have to take the next one or whatever, that's just, you know, how the cookie crumbles sometimes. Um, before we go to the next question, I, while I was listening to your presentation, I, I remembered that for people, so you you mentioned Ayn Rand's essay, The Conflicts of Man's Interests, which is in The Virtue of Selfishness. Uh, I just want to let everyone listening know that you can listen to Ayn Rand reading that essay for free on, Ayn Rand, on the Ayn Rand Institute website. If you go to our um, site, AynRand.org, in the campus section, there's a wealth of material by Ayn Rand herself, many essays. Uh, and in this particular case, there's a recording of her. I think this might have been for a radio show um, many years ago. And you can listen to the, the essay uh, if you're interested in sort of getting her own uh, presentation of this argument. Um, all right, so let's go back to the questions. Uh, there's a question from Steve. And he's referring to the quotation, one of the quotations you used in the presentation. So he says, the explanation of the quotation of there are no conflicts of interest among rational men seems to depend a lot upon among rational men part. Um, what exactly separates a conflict of interest among rational versus irrational men? Is it just that rational, that the rational understanding takes into account more of the causal requirements while the irrational one in a sense has a solipsistic concept of interests. Yeah, that's one way to put it. Rand in the essay lists four kind of considerations that are part of defining your interests and forming your desires if you're, you're rational. And um, I kind of treated the issue a little bit differently, but with that context in the background, hers are reality. Um, so this is against the solipsistic point, as uh, I think it was Steve put it. It's not just what's in your head and you don't take it. It's not just I want this and you're not thinking about what's real. You're thinking about reality, including um, what's required to make this, what the causes are, what effects it would have, uh, what role other people play in it, etc. cetera. Uh, so that's reality. A big part of reality is thinking of the context of the value. So the second one is context. Um, what role is it going to play in your life? What other facts uh, make it possible and condition its possibility. So for example, if it's a job, well, there has to be a company, the company to hire you has to exist in a division labor economy that you know implies a labor market and the potential for, for competition and so forth. And so that's part of what you have to be valuing if you're valuing the job. You can't just say, I want a job, but I don't want it in the kind of world that needs to exist for there to be jobs. Um, and again, that would be solipsistic or denying reality to deny context. And then the other two are responsibility and effort. And the effort is you, you have to work for it. You have to achieve it. You don't expect it to just come to you. And you don't value it as just coming to you. You value it as something that you act to create. And then you take responsibility for that, which means for identifying the kinds of causes that you need to enact to get it. And again, that's all, if you want to put it, as opposed to being subjective or solipsistic about your values. And that is what it is to value something rationally. And it's when all the parties do that, 
that their interest, that is their values, what they're after doesn't conflict with one another, though it may involve competing with one another. Um, when at least one party doesn't do that, then there are conflicts, right? Um, but if you are in a situation of freedom, you can try to deal with people only to the extent that they do respect these things and you can encourage them to and you can only deal with them on terms of here's the context we each have to take responsibility for our side of it i'm putting effort in and expect you to also and and so forth uh when we're in a situation where we're not free then we can't do that and we are inevitably in conflict and that is um a situation that we too often find ourselves in but the conflicts don't have to be there they're a result of the unfreedom and of irrationality so uh, let's go to a question from a Facebook viewer. Uh, and this person is asking, if two men love the same woman, how do their interests not conflict? Doesn't she have to choose one over the other to spend her time with? Yeah, she does. But what is it that they want? They want her to choose them, or I want her, if I'm one of them, to choose me freely as what she wants most, who she wants most, not to settle for me. And the whole concept of being chosen as a unique, irreplaceable value, not something someone's settling for because they can't get the other person, right, implies the context of there are other people in the world, other people who might be appealing and have good things about them, other people to be chosen from among. And so if there wasn't this context of potential rivals, if there wasn't a may the best man win type of situation, um, then what would I be gaining in her choosing me? I don't mean I have to value there being this specific rival uh, and being in competition with this guy for her hand, so to speak. But I have to value being chosen by her and me choosing her out of all the different people there are. And to value that is to value the situation that creates the possibility of this kind of competition. Uh, that is where there happens to be a specific other rival, right? And it um, doesn't mean that it's not sad if you get passed over. But it's, if there wasn't that possibility, then romance wouldn't be a choice in the first place. And what you're valuing is the choice. You choose one another. At least that's a big part of what you're valuing. So we have a couple more questions in the queue. I want to take the moderator's privilege and ask you um, to go back to one of the points you made in the presentation. You just touched on this, but I, I think it's worth um, sort of probing a bit. So you mentioned that the, sort of the focus of what you were covering is conflicts uh, be, uh, between people or among people. But it's also true, as you were talking about the issue of interest, that Rand's conception is that if you have thought about your interests rationally, you, you, they're not a heap of contradictions. And so there should, you know, there should be a set of, of values or goals or interests that you have that cohere and that they themselves don't fall into conflict. Um, mm -hmm. So let me put to you this kind of situation, which I think a lot of people experience. So, um, you know, a, a woman wants a career and she also wants to be a mother and it is very hard to do. And so it feels like a conflict of, of interest, like within her interests. Mm -hmm. um, or, I mean, I, I have a career and I am a father, so it's not quite the same thing, but I, I, um, I have 
situations where I think, well, how do I want to spend my time and, and pulled in different directions? Yeah, and this is the same um, So just like competition and conflict have to be distinguished when you're talking about conflicts of interest between people, when you're talking about conflicts or potential conflicts among your own values, we have to think competition for your time is not the same kind of conflict, right? It's not a conflict fundamentally. So to have an, none of the particular things that you might value, your family, your job, writing a particular paper, teaching a particular class, doing this particular thing. My, my job is writing and teaching. Um, none of those things are values in isolation. If you imagine a universe that has nothing but that thing in it, there's no reason to want that universe. It, the thing's only of value insofar as it forms part of the constellation of your life. The values have a context. And so you can't say, you know, oh, I'd like to be a father, it would be so easy if there was nothing for me to do but be a father. There was nothing else in life but fatherhood. Uh, or likewise, there was nothing else in life but working on this project at this moment. The project or the fatherhood, none of those things would be a value in that case. So for these things to be values requires um, them to be part of a life that includes different components and that includes balancing the different components and finding, composing a way for them to work together to add up to some whole, to add up to the life that you want. And that doesn't mean that it's easy to do, that there aren't all kinds of um, difficulties in figuring out how to compose a life, how to harmonize all these different elements into a life. It is hard. It's hard if you're trying to balance parenthood and a career. It's hard within a career to balance the different kind of competing things you could be doing and to pick one career from all the others you can do. It's hard within parenthood to pick the different, I mean, I've just had a kid and should I spend time learning about the sleep training or should I spend more time, even if I'm going to spend this many hours just on parenting related things, there's an infinite number of them I can do and they're in competition, right, for that time for one another. But um, that working out those competitions, picking from among the alternatives and finding a way to synthesize the various choices you make into a whole and valuing that whole and pursuing that whole and pursuing each of the components of it as a part of that whole. That whole thing is the challenge of living. And doing that is taking responsibility for living, putting the effort and the work in of living. So all of these things are work, they're hard, and some particular conflicts are harder than others. And because of some injustices, they sometimes fall harder on some people than others. Women are often, you know, have the brunt of the childbearing and the, the child rearing. So there are these kinds of questions, all of which come up, and I don't mean to, to make them difficult, but, or sorry, trivialize them. But part of the perspective one has to take on solving them uh, is valuing the solving of them, not seeing them as some thing that's, oh no, you know, it's it's unfairly thrust upon me uh, by reality that I need to work in order to live or that if I want to have a child and I want to have a career, I have to figure out how to put them together. If you didn't have to do that, there wouldn't be such a thing as life. There wouldn't be such a thing as values. And so you have to value the challenge of working out the balance, working out the, how these things fit together in the whole. All right. So we're, we're coming up on the hour. I want to get these remaining questions in uh, from Sam. Uh, how do the concepts fairness 
and level playing field apply to the ideas of competition and conflict? Aren't there situations in which the opinions of a job interviewer can bias a seemingly fair competition between applicants into more of a conflict between interviewer and interviewee? I guess there's several questions there. Maybe you just want to pick the first part. Um, well, so I think people have too denuded a concept of fairness or objectivity as though things are by default fair in the process of someone picking job applicants. They're by default fair or objective unless someone's got a problem that skews them. But that's not the way it works. I mean, if you think of it from the perspective of the guy trying to hire, right? He might want to hire the best person for the job, but might not know how to do it. How do you discover who's best? We have all these kinds of, if you want to call them biases or whatever, but um, our consciousness doesn't automatically figure out what's best. You, certain things are going to be more salient to you than others, and you might know that, but not know how to deal with it in the moment. How do, you might know that you forget a bias where you like dislike people of a certain race. You might find like, you know, because you're of this race or this gender or from this background, it's easier for you to get along with quickly and therefore see the good things about people of that race and harder for you to get to know people from a different background than you. And so maybe you're missing out on the most, you know, talented Asian candidates because it takes you a while to get to know them or something. Whereas the white ones you get to know right away. And um, if you want the best people, right, it's a challenge for you to figure out how to do this. And if you talk to thoughtful entrepreneurs, thoughtful people who hire, they really think about this seriously. Um, how do I do this? I'm, I'm, uh, some of them do it out of considerations of what they owe to the people they might hire. But a lot of them just, yeah, I want the best candidates. And I don't want to be like not noticing if a woman's better than a man because I have this bias. So the, the level playing field, if you want to call it that, or the kinds of standards that help you identify who's really best and who's really best for your job is an achievement. And part of this whole perspective of values or effects that you have to cause, that you have to take responsibility for them, they require effort, is recognizing that for the, the person doing the hiring, what he ought to be valuing is, uh, is um, a fair way of choosing, a way of choosing that focuses on the things that are really his considered values and that isn't affected by his uh, unduly affected by his personal preferences that aren't relevant to it or his, you know, the, the idiosyncrasies of his psychology. But that's something that he needs to work to achieve. And it's hard and it's an achievement if he does it and he can achieve it part way and so forth. Um, but it, he's losing out insofar as he doesn't do that. And he needs to take it as a value. Now, if you are the uh, employee or the person who's up for the job and you are such that you're you know, likely to be passed over or, you know, whatever, you're um, an Asian and you know that um, people think Asians have, you know, don't score well on personality or whatever because uh, people are prejudiced against them or whatever it is. I'm thinking of the issue with Harvard application. Uh, well, then if you're thinking of the, you think the employer is honest or you want to appeal to what's best in him, right? you then can raise this issue and you can think about how to raise it. You know, a lot of, you can, and that's again, a strategy. You not raise it like wagging your finger at him, but say, you know, I know um, we come from different backgrounds and it might be a little hard to see this side of me. You have to think about a strategy to bridge that gap too. Um, and thinking of it from the perspective of uh, if this guy's a good guy, he wants to be able to 
uh, see what would make me a good candidate if I am one. Uh, he might know that he might have some, some blinders or he might not on certain issues. If I think he does, I want to think about how can I work to transcend them? How can I appeal to that part of him that might be working to transcend them? And we have a common interest in him having a hiring process where the best man wins. Uh, and we can try to work together on that. And if he turns out not to be interested in that, he's like, no, I'm happy not liking Asians because, you know, whatever reason it is or whatever his issue is. Well, then he's being irrational and you'd rather not work for a guy to the extent that he's like that. Now, if everyone's like that, it's a problem, but you should be trying to appeal to the people who are least like that and appeal to the elements in people who are less like that. So one, one more question, I think we can fit this in. Uh, this one's from the perspective of a person who's applying for a college or a job, for example, and they're, and they're a good candidate, but they also know that there's other people are better than they are, or at least just as good. Um, and they get the job, let's say, or the college uh, placement, and but they but it's because of factors out of their control, like a minority quota or what they think might be an arbitrary decision. Now, for the person who receives that position or that job. Is it, and this is the question from Anonymous, uh, is it possible for one to feel, quote, at peace in this situation, knowing that it's likely an injustice was made somewhere along the process? So I think in the way things are today, in any complicated hiring process with a big company, and there are a lot of people in, and there are committees, and all of this is going on, um, you're guaranteed that there is going to be, that's a little too strong, but in most cases, there's going to be a significant amount of irrationality and unfairness at different stages in the process, pulling in different directions. And I don't think you're able to um, quantify with how much in which direction. So say you're applying to um, a school and they claim that what, what's really important to them is excellence and academic achievement and so forth. But, you know, some huge percentage of their uh, admissions are legacy admissions. And some percentage of the, you know, in other words, kids of, of um, parents who went there. Another is, is donors, which is fine if that's what they say they want to do, but they say it's all about excellence and the kids of the donors get in even if they're mediocre. And then a certain amount of it is... Um, racial minorities or whatever kind of group they think are underrepresented that I meant to. And so it, it's not, and so you get in and you are, you know, a Hispanic female who is not a legacy and whatever. There are all these competing irrational factors pulling in different directions. Were you net helped or hurt by them? How the hell can you know? You can't. And, um, so I, I, I don't think you should feel like you got in, you were unjustly favored. You can't tell if you were unjustly favored or unjustly pushed again. The same if you're a you know, white man who gets in, were you helped by someone's racial bias or hurt by a quota that's meant to try to push against people's racial biases? I don't think you can always tell. Um, if you think the, the um, procedure is grossly unjust, you know, you have no correlation whatsoever to your abilities and none of the people seem to care or value your abilities. And they just see you as the white guy who's part of the good old boys network or the 
Latino woman that lets or Latino woman that lets them check off their diversity box and that's all you are to them, some fungible member of a racial or ethnic collective, then I think you shouldn't want to be there or you should hold it as well. You, you should, it should really qualify your desire to be in the place. But if you think that there's a whole mix of, of people who really value good things about me, but also discrimination, some of which is working for me and some of which is working against me, um, I don't think you should feel bad about having gotten in. I think that's just you know part of a feature of our current society that's regrettable and we should try to work against. And you shouldn't be at peace with it in the sense of thinking this is good and accepting it. But you also, it's, it's, it's not your fault that people aren't perfectly rational or perfectly just. And um, unless you think you're getting in with a flagrant injustice, then I think you should, you know, if you think overall, all things considered, the job, the college, whatever it is, is, um, is worth going to, then you should go ahead and try to make what changes you can uh, in the process. And I should mention, by the way, that not um, all, it's not obvious uh, and it's probably not the same for all colleges, what the admission criteria should be, that it should be just, you know, your grades or your extracurricular, or this or that, like colleges or each institutions that have a purpose. Uh, they might have different purposes and those different purposes might lead them to want different kinds of student bodies and to favor different kinds of things. They might have different missions. Part of what's creating conflicts in our current context is that there are laws that are governing how colleges admit people and when they're, um, and they're trying to push them all into the same mold and they have differing values from one another that um, puts them into a conflict because they're not here free to interact with students and with one another uh, as they would if they were not under this kind of government force and mandates that um, require them to make these decisions in one way rather than another and then to fake about which way they're making them. Uh, if we had freedom in education you would have some schools that were like, you know, on a, a mission of promoting racial diversity or correcting past wrongs and others that were all about academics and others that were all about academics, but weren't admitting people on the basis of their academic scores. But their view was, we're all academics all the time at this school, but what we focus on is, say, helping people who didn't do well in high school do really well in the next stage, and they would not let people into what do I suppose, or whatever it would be, you'd expect there to be different missions, different criteria, different ways of letting people in, and we'd make our choices based on that. Well, thanks, Greg. I think we've run out of time. Uh, thanks to everyone who joined us today, and and for all the questions that uh, we appreciate it. And remember, uh, if you have questions you want to submit to us and suggest for future sessions you can write to us, webinars at aynrand.org. We look forward to having you join us next time. Thanks. Thanks, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.